your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We're starting a new book this week, and we'll be there for some time, I'm sure. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning that we can be in this place to worship our holy, sovereign God. You are worthy of the praise that we offer. Uh, you are worthy of far more. And we ask, Lord, this morning that our hearts would be open to your word, to see Jesus as he is, to be grateful that you have spoken into this world by your Son. And so we want receptive ears ourselves this morning as we read these words and hear them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If, when you woke up tomorrow morning, the first headline that you see on your phone, if it were to say, breaking news, God has spoken into his world. Wouldn't you be pretty excited to click on that link? I think I would. I have to imagine that if CNN or Fox News ran that headline, that there would be tens of thousands of clicks on it. And what if, after clicking on that link, the page loaded, and what you saw there would be Hebrews 1.1. The words, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What do you think the response to that news page would be? Do you think there would be disappointment? And if you were the one to have clicked on it, would you be disappointed to see that there? Because the news story would certainly be true, would it not? And it would be an extraordinary fact that God has spoken into his world no matter what the response of the people is who click on that page and see it. Into the world that we live in, God has spoken. The one who lives outside of time and space, who made everything out of nothing, the Holy One who no man can look at and live he has had something to say at a time to people here on earth. And so no matter when he said it, he has spoken. And isn't that fact extraordinary? Isn't it? Don't you think that that news is still pretty important to the people who live here? Because we give our ear to all sorts of news out there, don't we? We're fascinated by scientific facts that are passed along by radio or television. We like to listen to those things, give our ear to them, hear them. We love to hear stories of romance and heroism. We listen, thankfully, to good economic news, and we still listen to bad economic news, do we not? So what about this news that God has spoken. Will we give our ear to that? 
So doesn't it stand to reason that if he has said something, that that news should take priority over all others? This is certainly the way the author of this biblical book that we call Hebrews intended for these words to be received when he wrote them. And it's the way that we should still receive these words this morning, and that is with fascination that our God has spoken into his world. He dwells in unapproachable light, but he speaks to his people. And if God has said something, we need to listen to him. I think this is a pretty powerful start to this book. But it's not a normal start to a New Testament book, is it? Most of the New Testament books are letters written from an apostle to a church somewhere in the Roman Empire, but this particular letter does not have all the marks, the ordinary marks of a letter that we've become accustomed to. It does not open with words like the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth or Rome or Galatia or anything like that. There's no salutation, if you remember English class where you learned to write a letter. There's no salutation here. He just gets right to the point. Long ago, in various ways, God has spoken. So we don't know exactly who it is that wrote this book. We don't know exactly when it was written. We don't even know exactly to who it was written. One of the early church fathers, he said, only God knows who wrote the book that we call Hebrews. And this means that it's pretty hard to know the reason why it was written. And so why did this person choose to write these words to this particular church? What's going on in the lives of these people here where he felt the need to pick up the pen and put them to paper? And so there is a lot that we do not know because of what isn't said here in this letter, but there is a lot that we can know through what is said in it. We can tell that this is a church that has started to experience persecution. And whatever this persecution was, it was happening because these people were Christians, not just for some other reason. It's happening because they call themselves Christians and the followers of Jesus Christ. That's why they were being persecuted. And so their thinking seems to be, if we just leave this Christianity behind, if we stop following Christ, then our lives will return to some form of normal. We won't suffer as we have been. And it seems that many of these people were former Jews. And if that was the case, that there was a temptation for them to stop being Christians and go back to Judaism. And Judaism was a more acceptable and older form of worship in the Roman Empire. If they just leave the Christianity part behind and just go back to what they used to be, everything will become okay. And so this writer sets out to show that Christ, though, is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And if you abandon Christ, that there is no Judaism to go back to. There's no salvation back there and all of those sacrifices that were made. 
There's no salvation in the temple, no salvation in the priesthood. Jesus came to fulfill all of that. So if you leave him behind, there's no longer any offering for sins. And so guess where that leaves you? If there's no offering for your sins, it's just you and your sin standing before a holy God. And you don't want to go back to that. So this letter has been written to give strength to these particular people to continue on in the faith. Keep going. Keep following Jesus. It is the only faith that is acceptable to God, and that is faith in his Son. You leave that behind, and you have nothing so whatever was happening, it was getting increasingly difficult for these people to live as Christians. One man's opinion I read this week, and I, I thought that it would be worth sharing because this is a very real possibility. Again, just a possibility. But he says that he thinks that it probably is A.D. 64. And in A.D. 64, there was a great fire in Rome. Massive fire. And Christians began to experience persecution under the name of Nero Caesar. Out of the 14 districts in the city, the fire burnt down 10 of them, and only four were left unscathed. And so naturally, the people were angry. They wanted answers. They wanted to know why it was that the fire couldn't be stopped, who was to blame for all of this. And Nero was beginning to feel the pressure. And so he tried to get the pressure off of himself. So what did he do? He blamed the Christians. And then they started to become arrested, tortured, injured, wounded because of their faith in Jesus. And so the church began meeting in secret in the catacombs, the underground tunnels on the outskirts of Rome where they could escape the police. William Lane says this. He says, The writer of Hebrews knew that his friends were frightened. They had experienced the paralyzing fear of death. In their frailty, they had considered what measures they might take in order to avoid calling attention to themselves. They began by avoiding contact with outsiders, and in some instances, they withdrew from the Christian community altogether. The public confession of Jesus Christ as the Son of God could cost them their lives, and withdrawal appeared to be an expedient or good measure to take. We can empathize with their feelings of fear, for we too can become frightened when our world falls apart as theirs did. No matter when this occurred, it's clear that they are being tempted to walk away, make a choice for themselves that would make life just a little more comfortable or easy. And it certainly would have been more comfortable or easy for them to just leave Jesus and the family of faith behind. And so what is it that this writer knew that they needed for this time of temptation, for this time of fear? And what might we say that we also need? What do we need in the time that we live in now? And I think to say it about as simply as can be said is that we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. It's about as simple as it can be said, but it is the truth of this letter, and that's what he is trying to draw their attention to. He wants them to understand who Jesus is truly, 
Not just the Jesus of their feelings or the Jesus of their fascination or maybe just the Jesus that they've heard about, but who is Jesus really? And what does it mean to follow behind him? This is one reason why I wanted to preach through this book. I so enjoyed going through the Gospel of Mark with you. It was just easy during that year and a half we spent there to keep the focus on Jesus because the entire book was about the ministry of Jesus. Every passage was dealing with him. But I have to say that the book of Hebrews is the same way. It's just from a different angle. It tells us at every turn that Jesus is all we need. He's what we need. And he is superior to everything that we read about in the Old Testament. And so again, these, these Jewish people who were in this church, they were thinking, well, can't we just go back to Moses? What? Moses was good enough back then. He was fine, right? Promised land, priesthood, sacrifices, God said all of that stuff was acceptable. And what this man wants to make clear is, is that Jesus is superior to all of those. So he systematically goes through each point demonstrating that very fact. And so he tells us that he's the perfect priest. You want to go back to the temple, do you? And witness the sacrifices and think that it might cleanse your conscience and your soul of sin well jesus is the perfect sacrifice he's the perfect priest he himself is the temple we start off here by seeing there's some people might think that angels you know maybe you know we we should listen to the angels people listen to the angels in the old testament but he wants to make it clear that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He provides a final rest now and into heaven that Joshua could not provide to the people of God when he led them into the promised land. Weren't they promised a rest of sorts? But Jesus promises us a much greater rest than Joshua ever could have. He's the author and the finisher of our faith we're told in chapter 4 that he gives us access into the throne room of God, not the holy of holies in the tabernacle or the temple where only one man could go one time a year to make sacrifices. No, Jesus entered into the holy of holies of heaven to give us access to that place, that throne room. We're told that he's the eternal God who put on flesh like we have so that he could sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And he is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. He truly is what we need. So brothers and sisters, do you have doubts? Do you have worries? Do you have fears in the world that we live in today? Of having a hard time understanding how you're supposed to live in it? I think you're in good company with every Christian that's ever walked the earth. And God knows that, and he says to you, look at my son. He is all you need. And he will faithfully lead you home to him. And that's what this old church, whoever they were, this is what they needed. And this is exactly what this little outpost in South Buffalo needs 2,000 years later. 
We need Jesus as much as any church ever has. So this writer starts off with those words. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Because God has chosen to speak into this world, it tells us something about him. What does this tell us about God? That he's always spoken to his people for all time. He's always had something to say to them. And yes, today he's spoken to us, spoken to us through his son. What can we know about God from this? I think we can clearly see that God cares about the human family. He could have just stayed aloof from it. Once sin took place into the world, he could have wiped his hands of this place, never darkened the door of earth, never had anything to say at all to the people who lived here. And he would have been perfectly just to have done that. But because he has said something into this world, it shows that he truly does care about those who live here. He didn't just create the world and leave it to its own devices. He's not the master watchmaker who made the instrument, wound it up, and then walked away. No, he's engaged in the happenings of this world, and he cares enough to communicate openly with the people who live here. So we're told in days of old, God spoke in a number of different ways, and he spoke at various times. And he's talking about here how God spoke to the people in the Old Testament. Maybe in your minds you can think of some of the ways that God did that. How did he speak to the people under the Old Covenant? He spoke out of the mouths of angels, didn't he? And he also spoke out of the mouths, well, out of the mouth of a donkey. He spoke out of the mouths of prophets, but he also spoke through a burning bush. God spoke to his people in a very fearful way to them, if you remember, from the top of a mountain through lightning and thunder. And God also spoke in dreams and visions. And so a lot of different people heard the word of God in all sorts of ways. That's what he is telling us here. But the writer isn't concerned with fleshing all of that out. His point is that these people, this particular church, if we could say this church right here, that we have received something far better than any old messenger. The word that they and we have heard has come directly, he says, from God's own Son. Don't you think that's better? Better to hear it from the sun than the mouth of a donkey or through an angel? So this is far superior. That's the argument that he is making here. This is a far superior way to hear the word of God and with finality. I was reminded when I was thinking of this of the parable that Jesus told about the, the farmer, the man who bought a field and he lent it out to tenant farmers and he dug the wine press and went away for a season. And then eventually... He sent some of his people to the farmer to get some of the fruit of the produce, to take some of it back to himself because he's the one that owns the field. 
And when those people arrived, what happened to them? They were beaten and sent away. Well, he sent more. Same thing happened to them. And eventually, the owner of the land said, I will send my son to them because he will respect him. There's a finality to sending the son. There's a superiority to sending the son that nobody else has. And so Jesus was talking about how God came to his people through those prophets of old and what happened to them. They were beaten and sent away and not listened to. And eventually, what did God do? He sent his son. There is a superiority and a finality to that. What else can he do? Who else can he send but his son? And so if men were willing to listen to God way back when, he's saying that people did hear the word of God. God's faithful people did hear his word through those prophets. If they listened to them at all, surely, surely we should listen to God if he has spoken by his son. And so once you've gotten the message Straight from the Son, what else do you need? Who else do you need sent to you? And in case somebody were to make the argument that it might be possible to get the message straight from God himself, wouldn't that be better? The reply would have to be that the Son himself is God. And that's exactly what this writer says in these two verses that follow. Look with me at verse 2. He tells us that the Son who has now spoken to us in these last days has been appointed heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of all things. And so whatever we think of as belonging to God, what's his? What's God's? What belongs to him? Whatever we think that belongs to him, we're being told belongs to the Son. He is the heir. So he says here he is the heir of all things. Well, what, what is included in all things? All things, right? Jesus is the heir of everything that you can see. He is the heir of everything that you cannot see. All things. He is Lord and king and ruler and owner of everything. So if you were to take a walk outside, out here to the left, down into Cass Park, every tree that you see in Cass Park belongs to Jesus. There is not a scrap of ground in South Buffalo that is not his. This nation is his. The city of Buffalo itself and our state belongs to Jesus Christ. He is the heir of all things. This also includes you. All that we see belongs to him. And not only is he the heir of all things, what else do we see here? That he is in fact creator of all things. What? I thought God created everything. Right? What do you mean he, the Son, is the creator of all things? What this writer here is making clear is that when you say God, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so when you say God, you cannot think of him properly and completely without also thinking of the Son. It's the same thing that we read in Colossians chapter 1, John chapter 1, that the eternal Son of God, who has always existed in unity with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, was there in that beginning before the world was formed, and he actively created this world. Jesus, the Son of God, is the Creator. He is true God of true God, the same substance in being as God. And so whatever can be said of God can be said of him. And there might be no better way to say this than what we see there in verse 3. He tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And any good Jew who were to have read these words would know that God does not share his glory with anyone. It's a glory that belongs to himself. And so here this writer is saying that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. What does that mean? So these readers of the Old Testament scriptures would have been told about God's glory. They would have read about it, but they never would have seen it themselves. Jesus came and made visible the glory of God to men. He came to make it seen in himself. Men could see him with their eyes. Distant stars, they make their glory seen from far away by the powerful light that they radiate across galaxies. Their light is their glory. You wouldn't know that they existed if you did not see the light out there. The light belongs to the star itself. And Jesus, we are being told here, is the light of God radiating to men. People could see him and bear witness to the fact that there is a God in heaven by what they see in Jesus Christ. He says it another way when he says he is the exact imprint of God's nature. The word imprint is from the Greek word icon, and it has a similar meaning as the icons that are on your computer screen or on your digital profile, maybe that you have out there somewhere. What does that mean? They are the visible representations of what is unseen. They represent something else. They're seeing the other thing is not. And so Jesus is the icon of God. And so whatever God is, Whatever is true of him, whatever you read about God in the Old Testament, all of it, by the way, whatever you read about God, it is all true of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I want you to think about what we sang this morning. We sang songs about God, didn't we? Remember a couple of those? And I will say that sometimes when we say the word God, it comes across as being very vague, doesn't it? God, 
I mean, that just means so many things to so many different people. I go and talk to some guys from time to time, and one of the things that I said to them is that when you speak of God, I think it's probably helpful that we kind of define what we mean by that. And so instead of saying just God to them, I started saying the Lord. The Lord begins to give definition to who God is. But this writer here is taking it a step further and making it clear that when we speak of God, we are speaking of Jesus. So whatever can be said of God can be said of the Son of God. And so this morning we sang a song called God of Wonders. And how'd that go? God of Wonders beyond all galaxies, you are holy. You're holy. And when we sang that song to God, who are we singing that to? It certainly includes the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the God of wonders beyond all galaxies who made all galaxies, and He is holy. Certainly gives definition to the word God, does it not? And we also sang a song called The Goodness of God. You know, we could, we could probably ask all sorts of different people with all sorts of different beliefs to sing that song, could we not? And they probably would give testimony to the fact, unless I'm forgetting some phrase that's in it, to the fact that their God is good to them. And they love his voice. And you've led me through the fires and all of those things. But who are we calling God when we sing that song? Some vague, nameless, distant deity? Some force or power out there? No! We're singing specifically to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We're singing it to the Father, sure. We're also singing to the Holy Spirit, who also gets left behind a lot, right? Not a lot of thought going the Spirit's way. But we need to be clear that the God that we speak of is the Son. He is true God of true God, has always existed. Before Jesus was incarnate, he did exist in the throne room of God as the eternal son. He has always been there. And that's what this writer is making clear. The son that we speak of is the creator. He is the nature of God. He is the exact imprint of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God so that there can be no mistake who he is talking about and with what authority that he has come and spoken. When the son speaks and he says he has into this world, breaking news, right? No matter when that happened, when he came, the Son spoke into this world with an authoritative voice. And what did he say? What did he say? That the kingdom of God has come into the world. That salvation has come for sinners. Sinners like you and me. There is hope for us in him. He came to declare those words to us. Will we listen? 
Will we listen as if we wake up in the morning and see the headline on our phone that says, breaking news, God has spoken into his world. Do you ever approach your Bible in that way? Oh, Lord God, I love your voice, and I must hear from you, and you have spoken. Speak. He speaks, and he lives, and he reigns right now. That's what this church that we call Hebrews, whoever they were, that's what they needed to hear. Look to the Son and listen to him. He has something to say. He has spoken with authority. Will you hear it? That's what we need to hear today. So brothers and sisters, I ask you this morning, are you struggling with sin? Are you struggling with sin? And when I say sin, something pops into your mind that you know that you are not only constantly tempted with, but you're giving in to. Are you wrestling with sin? And so can you not look to Jesus this morning and know that he came into the world to deal with your sin. So again, if you're struggling with sin, Jesus is the answer and he is the place where you are to look. Could you say this morning that your relationships are a mess? Marriage, relationships with your children, grandchildren, friendships, work relationships, whatever it is, that it seems that there is a storm that surrounds every relationship that you seem to have problems and you don't know how to deal with those problems but if you look to jesus has he not shown us how to handle relationships that our relationship to the father was an absolute wreck and he came to bring reconciliation and forgiveness and grace to the enemies of god he tells us how to handle those relationships if we look to him and listen to him. Are you afraid? Are you dealing with fear in your life? Maybe this world, just like the world that these people were living in, caused them to be afraid. They didn't know how to live, or maybe didn't want to live faithfully sometimes because of what that might mean. They put themselves in danger, certainly put themselves in a place of discomfort. And so are you afraid? Well, Jesus, he does give us access to that throne room where he tells us there is grace to help in times of need, whatever your need is. And if you have a heavenly father through him who knows exactly what you need and he delights to give it, some of you this morning are tired, and I don't just mean physically tired, Maybe you're physically tired, but you're emotionally tired, you're spiritually tired, you're just tired. The storms of life have worn you down. And what does the Son tell us if we look to Him? He assures us that He will give us strength to help in times of need here, that He will carry us if we yoke up with Him, that His burden is light. Yoke up to Jesus. But He also tells us there is a better world 
a better world with him that is yet to come. He assures us of that, and that pushes us forward to continue to be faithful while we're here until the Lord Jesus brings us home. So that's the aim of God's Spirit in the pages of this letter in this whole book that we call the Bible to make the comforting words of the Son audible, audible to our hearts. So I hope you see this morning that God has spoken. We need to ask ourselves, are we listening? Let's pray together. And while I pray, if the worship team would come forward and they're going to lead us in one last song of praise before we close today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning that we can come into this place and hear not from a preacher, but hear from Jesus Christ that he has spoken into this world great news. And we are being told that our greatest need today, no matter where we find ourselves, no matter how old we are or how young, no matter if we think everything in life is going just perfect or not, that the greatest need that we have is to look to Jesus, to see him as the Son of God, our Savior and the one who speaks to our hearts a better word than anything else that we could hear in this life. Lord Jesus, bend our hearts toward you as plants bend themselves toward light. Have our hearts and keep our focus on you this week that we would plead with you each and every day to make your love evident to our souls. Thank you for being there. Thank you for speaking. And thank you for grace to help in every instance of every day that we need, whether we realize it or not. You are good. We pray all this in the strong name of our Savior Jesus.